Happiness is important. It's good for us, but it's not everything. And this is where sometimes it's misunderstood. So happiness as a positive emotion, we, we know that positive emotions are healthy. They, they contribute to a good life in many, many ways. But a really good life is much more than just feeling good. It's also doing good. So it's also about generosity and altruism and volunteering and connection. Um, it's also about, you know, we know, I'm sure you know, to live a good life, um, you need at times to do things that aren't always pleasant. Hello and welcome to Stories by the Wayside, a podcast by Wayside Chapel. My name is John Owen and I've been the pastor and CEO of Wayside Chapel since 2018, but I've spent my entire life creating a community with no us and them. This podcast is a tribute to love and belonging, loneliness and loss, and the rich kaleidoscope of chaos that comes when life is lived from the gutter up. Every episode, I invite friends from the wayside for honest, big-hearted conversations about the crisis of disconnection in these overwhelming times. My guest today is a clinical psychologist, author and public speaker. I loved this far-reaching conversation, which took us from modern masculinity and what team sport can teach you about life, to tips on being a better listener and getting a good night's sleep. My guest devotes much of his working life to ensuring people are at their best, which can be pretty challenging when you yourself suffer from clinical depression. And we talk about that too. How wanting to be happy all the time is absurd and how a good life is about generosity, volunteering and connection, something we believe in passionately at Wayside. I think you'll love this fun and engaging chat and find it strikes a great balance of good talk and practical tips. have spoken previously about being an avid young sports person, <laughs> particularly in the arena of cricket. So uh, were you a batsman or a bowler? <laughs> I probably should clarify. Um, my avidness or my enthusiasm outreached my uh, actual skill level, but anyway, I was mainly a batsman. As it does for 99.99% yes. of us all. I was predominantly an opening or top order batsman, yeah. All right. Now, uh, you know, often we say that uh, men uh, usually – pretty horrendous at remembering significant milestones in their life as it comes to involving other people but uh, have a pretty spot-on memory for their favourite innings or shot or stroke. Tell us about yours. <laughs> I don't know if there are too many that were worth remembering, to be honest, but uh, I guess what I wished was my favourite stroke was a, was a cover drive. I guess that was a, like a classic sort of shot. Um, one of my heroes or idols growing up or someone I admired um, was, uh, um, what's his name, Gower, the, um, the English. David, David Gower. Gower sorry, yeah. um, and even though I was right-handed, he was left-handed, but I, I, I loved the way he played. He seemed so relaxed. And then a bit later on, I suppose, Mark Waugh in a similar way, the way they looked so easy. Um, so I don't know if I ever pulled off the beauty of their style, but that's kind of what I... Um, tried to imitate. <laughs> Can you just describe the feeling of creaming the perfect cover drive? Well, actually, it's funny. There is one that I sort of vaguely remember and the feeling is that it, almost like I didn't hit the ball. It just, it, it was so smooth. It didn't, you know, normally when you hit the ball there's a, there's a sound, there's a bit of resistance almost, you know, as, mm. the, as the physics takes play. But, um, but I do remember hitting one shot where it just felt like nothing happened. Um, and I, I guess I can still remember it in a way and it, 
I can still kind of visualise it going all the way to the boundary. So I suppose they did hit at least one or two decent shots in my time. Often we think about our lives from the rear vision mirror. You know, we look back at those times. But trying to think about your experience of the sporting arena and kind of from how it felt as a, as a young developing adolescent male, what lessons did you learn about life through that experience? Well, I learned a lot, actually, and it was not just cricket, but we grew up, my father was a very avid, uh, you know, we followed the NRL, um, so football was a big part of our, rugby league was a big part of our lives too, and then I played rugby union at school, so so team sports generally was a big part of my life, and I loved it, I and mean, it was exciting, and, and I, I guess it's a bit cliched, I suppose, but I mean, you learn about winning and losing, um, you know, particularly the rugby teams I played for, we lost a lot, so <laughs> we, we certainly learned a lot about that. You kind of learn about bouncing back, about resilience, about enjoying the game, not just the result. Um, teamwork, um, you know, I guess as in any any team sport, you know, you can't do it all on your own, so you have to collaborate, you have to work with others. And then I suppose at a sort of bigger level, you know, the teams that I supported over the years have had good and bad periods. Um, I suppose all, all of the teams I've supported have had winning periods where they've won championships, won competitions, done really well. But then, um, you know, as we know these things, they ebb and flow and then years later they've had terrible losing periods. And, um, you know, I guess I've had some difficult periods in my life and one of the things, it took me a long time to learn, but these days I suppose one of the things I've got much better at telling myself is that this too shall pass, um, you know, yeah. that these bad times won't last forever. Eventually I suppose I'll get back on the winning podium. I suppose when it, it might be tomorrow or next month or next year, but you know, these things will happen. Mm. Nothing quite teaches you about life like a team sport and mm. realising that it's beyond individual effort and pursuit there is a role that we all have to play and that we often flourish when we can have that moment where we realise that we are necessary and significant but not central to what's going on, particularly as we do things together. That doesn't necessarily always cash into some of the lessons you learn internally or personally too. So, you know, you you did learn some of the good lessons around there will be good seasons and good periods and bad periods, but sometimes you, you've spoken about uh, putting in a poor performance and uh, and often walking off the field with your, your head bowed and perhaps a, a tear in your eye. And What did you learn through that period? And particularly, maybe not even internally, but what were you told? Well, that's a really good question. And and I'll, I'll start by saying that it took me a long time to learn these things. You know, I wish I, I wish well, maybe... Well, you, you do identify as a male, which means, yeah. you know, generally <laughs> that is the definition, is it's, it takes us many mistakes to learn I, anything. I, I wish I'd <laughs> learned some of these lessons a bit earlier, but, you know, that's... I guess I shouldn't be too hard on myself either. But, um, I, you know, you, you say that working off with a tear, and, and I did walk off the cricket pitch, the you know the, the the football field with tears in my eyes. And mm. back in those days, particularly as a male, that wasn't really accepted. Like I literally had tears in my eyes, not just metaphorically. Um, now my father at the time was very supportive, and I think in his own way was a, I guess what would you know, a new age man in a sense. Um, but didn't really have the vocab. You know, he tried and he wanted to care and he wanted to sort him. He didn't really have the vocabulary. So I don't think, you know, he didn't really know how to help me. Um, and I didn't really, you know, I didn't have the vocabulary either. So I didn't really know why it felt wrong, but I just knew it did feel wrong. You know, this idea that boys shouldn't cry, men shouldn't cry or whatever. Um, and it wasn't for till years later 
that I even heard the phrase, um, you know, highly sensitive person, which has more in more recent years become a bit of a, well, not a diagnosis, but a descriptor, I suppose. Mm. So, you know, looking back now, I was and continue to be a highly sensitive person. I feel a lot, um, which now, more recently, I've learned isn't a bad thing. It's just who I am. And there's, yep. I guess, like everything in life, there's pros and cons, there's good and bad to it. But at the time, you know, when I was a when you know, when I was a teenager, and again we're going back several decades, um, it really wasn't accepted in a way, and it was, dare I say it, frowned upon. Um, so I suppose again what I've learned from that is that that it's okay to feel. It's okay not to be okay. It's definitely okay for men to cry. Um, you know, there's ways I've learned to manage some of the particularly the more intense levels of distress, but we shouldn't try to deny that distress or deny real emotions, which, as I'm sure you know, is a, you know, is a big part of modern masculinity Something and something that many of us are still struggling to mm. find the right balance with. Don't express your emotions too much because they might get out and frighten the horses perhaps. Mm-hmm. You touched on two things that I'd like us to kind of walk through a bit and explore. Is One is the emotional vocabulary that is accessible to most males. Mm-hmm. The other <laughs> one being our ability to not only possess that but to express that and to be able to share it with others, particularly as um, young developing men with other young developing males as we navigate our ways through life. So thinking about those two things, so for those who may not be super familiar, what do you mean by emotional vocabulary? Yeah, again, great question. Um, and But I'll just go back a step and say it's, it's not just, I think, about young men and young men talking to young men. It's mm. you know, young women as well, I think. You know, we're all part of this together. Um, and obviously for many young men, relating to young women is an important part of growing up and maturing. It's a big part of life as well. So, um, so yeah, just just to clarify that. But yep. by emotion, I mean, I think if you ask a lot of men, and, and look, look, I, I don't like to overgeneralise, but I, and I am overgeneralising. That's all right. We, we can overgeneralise and we can cash it out later. <laughs> okay. But, uh, you know, again, if you ask a lot of, and particularly, um, well, if you go back several decades, definitely so, um, still problematic today. But if you ask a lot of young men, yeah, how are you feeling, you might get, you know, good or bad, <laughs> happy or sad. Yeah. Um, and we, again, we know from the research that the average male um, has fewer number of words to describe their emotional experiences than the average female. Um, but if you look at the research, and because and, I spent much of my life studying psychology as well, um, you know, there is a large and rich vocabulary for describing the full range of emotions. So even if we just look at, well, if you just look at the so-called quote-unquote negative emotions, um, you know, there are far more words than just bad or even sad. You know, there's anxiety and there's stress and there's worry. They're just sort of, that's just one particular theme. Then there's mm. sadness, there's grief, there's anger, there's frustration, there's irritation. And I could go on and on and on. Um, and then the same with the positive emotions. You know, again, if you look at you know, a lot of people just say, hey, feeling, if you're feeling good, you say, well, happy. Okay, well, that's one. But there are many, many other forms of positive emotion. There's contentment, there's joy, there's excitement, again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, but I guess the bottom line is what we know from the research is that the larger your vocabulary, the better you can describe the experience. And the better you can describe the experience, the easier it is to either savour it in a positive sense or manage it in a negative sense. So what you're saying is there's more emotions than just angry, hungry and horny. <laughs> Many more. <laughs> yes. Having access to a, a good emotional vocabulary still also presumes that you, well, it doesn't presume, but it's good to have those. I mean, it's important to have those as you've, your research has indicated, but it's also about having uh, some people to be able to share that with and to process that with. And how, how are we doing as um, 
as growing and developing, you know, from when we were young to, to perhaps what younger people are experiencing now? Yeah, well, well, there's actually, I think there's probably two parts to that. So one, as I said, there's um, the understanding of or the vocabulary you have to define our emotional experiences, which again, for most of us, you know, there's a, a lot of improvement that could be done. We many, Almost all of us could improve our emotional vocabulary. And again, not just males, but females as well. But um, And by by improving our vocabulary, as I said, we, we can manage it and, and, and um, um, cope with it better, I suppose. Uh, the other bit, though, that comes into that is then expressing those emotions, which mm. is a secondary part. So having the internal vocabulary is one thing, but being able to then to describe that or express it to particularly, I suppose, a loved one or someone close, or, you know, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, friend, colleague, whatever, that's another um, that's another thing entirely. And again, a lot of us are not as good as we could be at expressing, at communicating those emotions. Now, there's a variety of reasons for that. One is just, I suppose, kind of like a basic skill level. We don't have the skills, the communication skills. But then there's also, as you hinted at earlier, there's kind of a stigma, I suppose, particularly, I guess, for men that you know, if I say I'm feeling not great. If I tell you, you know, if you're my good friend, I say, look, I'm, I'm struggling at the moment. I'm feeling a bit down. Um, there's a stigma. There's a fear that somehow or other I might be negatively evaluated, that you will think poorly of me, that you'll think I'm weak or, you know, this idea that, uh, um, you know, that feeling bad, feeling sad, feeling like crying is some sort of weakness, which which is not. But, but anyway, that communication aspect is a whole other part of it. And then the third bit, which I think you were getting at with your questions, is a whole other level, which is do we even have those connections to begin mm. with? Like, do we even have friends that we can trust, that we feel comfortable with? And unfortunately, um, unfortunately, again, very, very sadly, uh, the answer's no or not as good as it could be for many, many people and particularly, particularly for men. I mean, men are doing pretty poorly at this. We're, we're not connected and so we're feeling more and more isolated and lonely. And isolation and loneliness are significant contributors to poor mental health and poor physical health for that matter too. Yeah, we, we hear that uh, loneliness is the new smoking. Mm. So we, we have, uh, if we can have access and we are raised in ecosystems, hopefully families and communities where we are able to name and more accurately describe what we're experiencing and we are lucky enough to have people around us who can help uh, receive some of our um, processing, as it were, or sharing of, of how we are. Um, how do we overcome the natural reflex that uh, we have as listeners to either jump in and judge or to fix? Can you give us some tips? Because we've all learned that it, the great question, are you okay? But there is a whole subsequent bunch of questions and also uh, responsibilities for those of us as listeners. And can you can you kind of share from your experience, but also um, from uh, your life and research and involvement now is what are some of the ways that we can get beyond saying, you know, have you tried quinoa or kale or, <laughs> you know, my friend completely changed his attitude to this and all of a sudden we see as someone has had the courage to actually share with us, our responses can often push them away mm. and push them further inward too. Yeah, look, a fantastic question and really, really important question because as you hinted at, in the last at least decade, if not two decades, there's been a lot of emphasis on encouraging people to, to talk more, to express, and that's fantastic. Um, um, so, you know, we do want people to talk more. We do want more, you know, the, you know, it ain't weak to speak. We want people to speak out and say, I'm not feeling good, etc. But there's been less focus on the receiver, on the listener, and how they can then respond. Yes. Um, which is you know, just as important because, as you said, if, you know, if I come out to you, if I speak out to you in some way, and you respond in some way or other that's not helpful, 
Well, that, and I'll just go back in my shell or I'll just recede or, or withdraw or whatever it might be. So that's that's not ideal. It's an Australian cultural phenomenon, isn't it? We well, always are trying to fix or oh, I think it's broader advice. than that. I think it's probably a worldwide yeah. or certainly certainly Western world, for want of a better phrase. But, um, but uh, yeah, I don't, think it, I don't think it's just limited to Australia. I think it's, mm. it's much broader than that. Um, now, before I answer, I'll actually pick up on something you said because um, you mentioned Are You OK? And I will give props to them. The Are You OK? Day website has some fantastic resources. I hope it's okay to give them a plug. Please do, uh, yeah. but they, you know, And we'll talk about beta later. So yeah, be... you know, well, there and a number of other um, you know, websites these days, there's some great free resources and they actually have some really good videos and tip sheets about, um, well, how to speak out but also how to listen and how to respond. So I'd you know, encourage people to, you know, a lot of people have heard of Are You OK Day but not that many have been to their website and checked out, I guess it's totally free, so checked out the great resources that are there. But but I suppose to come back to your key question, I think as, as a listener or if, talking to the listeners out there, um, as you said, one of the first things is to try and listen without judgment, you know, that is really, really important and not to jump in straight away with fixes. Um, Mm. That might be appropriate and, you know, oftentimes it is, but often as the second or third step, the first step should really be just to listen, or even even before, just to be there, to be present, which sort of sounds a bit cliched and vague in a way, but just to be there to let that person know either overtly by saying it or just by you know, representing it in behaviour, I'm here for you. I'm here to listen. Um, I'm not going to judge you. And, you know, you can say that overtly if you want or you just can send that message through other <coughs> nonverbal means. But I think that's that's the first thing, to listen. And and then what I, do, what I often encourage people to do is to, to then actually ask the person explicitly, don't be afraid to ask, do you want me to try to help you solve this or do you want me to just listen? Because... Different people want different things at different times. Fantastic. Some people will, you know, I might want you to help me solve problem solve this. Um, and if that's the case, then fantastic. Let's work through the options, review the pros and cons, all of that sort of stuff. But sometimes sometimes I might not want that. I just want to listen. I just want to know that there's someone there for me, that I'm not alone to come back to that point. So I'd re- always encourage people to ask them uh, to find out what that other, po- not what you think they want, but what they actually want. Fantastic. These are really solid tips because often we are blindsided. You know, at Wayside we have a few mantras. One is that no one's a problem to be solved, they're a person to be met and we encourage everyone involved to take an attitude of non-judgmentalism. The other thing we encourage is to be um, no complacency is what we call it and we say we have to be alert because often these bids for connections arrive as gifts and our responsibility as listeners is to be able to recognise that a gift is being given, a bid is being made. We also have a real focus on not trying to fix things as well. Now, you have a background in, in psychology and you know, sometimes there's a practical thing, I've got a broken toenail, can you fix it? But, you know, how much should we be, even with consent, uh, trying to help people fix some of their problems or solve some of their problems? Oh, look, I, I definitely think there's a role for that. There's no doubt about it. Um, and because some problems are fixable. Um, mm. So if we can fix something, why wouldn't we do it or help someone else do it? But even Just if not the, unbidden, right? We, yeah, I was going to say, but even if that is the desired outcome from every party, even if that is what we're working to there's a classic book that goes back, well, even before my time, I suppose, which is Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's a bit of a cliched sort of self-help book. But there's some wonderful... I've yet to meet uh, someone who I'd consider highly successful who hasn't at some stage of their life significantly been impacted by that book. Well, it's, it's... 
There's a lot of good stuff in there. Mm. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And one of the first, I think it's actually the first habit, uh, is seek first to understand and only then mm. to be understood. So even coming back to the question, even if problem solving or solution finding is what we want to do, before that we need to seek to understand. We want to understand. You know, we need to actually understand what the problem is and what the person actually wants before we get to that. But too many people jump too quickly into that. And if you mm. if you jump into the problem solving or solution finding without first doing the understanding, which is what often happens, you can go off on tangents. You can go the wrong way. You can solve the wrong sorts of things. Um, so coming or, back, or we can I, easily make it about ourselves, can't well, we? Exactly, <laughs> and that, that's exactly we can give the answer that we think we would want rather than what they think, uh, rather than what that other person does want. But, um, you know, I think that that's super, super important because often, you know, we do make a lot of assumptions which we should try not to do um, uh, and the way to get around that is, is again, by asking the person, by listening and understanding and then asking them what they, you know, what's going on and what do they actually want or need. As we're listening, very much focusing on taking a non-judgmental approach and a stance and, you know, often at Wayside I say on your first shift there, bring a pair of undies and a pair of socks and when you get there give the undies to the front desk and keep the socks and the first time you're tempted to download the uh, wisdom of your accumulated experience, I say take the socks out and shove them in your mouth. <laughs> it is a discipline to sit and listen as you seek to understand which can often involve a process where internally we are fighting our impulses to jump in, to jump in, to jump in, but then there crosses a threshold at some point where we are taken into a space that's unfamiliar and I think that's why many people jump in and try and uh, impose upon the scenario their own narrative or their own story or their own needs in that point. But what it leads us to is a place of vulnerability mm. when someone's actually sharing deeply with us. Again, what would you suggest we can do as listeners to be able to hold ourselves open mm. even whilst we're feeling like we're losing our grip on whatever reality we entered any conversation with? Well, yeah. Does that make sense? And it doesn't. Again, another yeah. fantastic question because I would, you know, I think the answer to this is very possibly one of the most important things that any of us can learn. I was trained in this as a psychologist, but I mean, like as a as a friend, as a parent, as a manager, this is, you know, the if not the then one of the most important skills we need to have in life. I would say, uh, I'm probably a bit biased, but I would argue it's one of the most important things. But we're not taught this at school, or. Not very much anyway. You know, there are there are some good school programs now yep. around sort of, I guess, you know, emotional intelligence. Uh, well, I didn't have any of them in my time and a lot of kids still don't get them. So, mm. um, you know, and, and, and I never want to, um, you know, I would never say that <clears throat> maths and science and history and English aren't important. Of course, you know, we need to learn what we learn at school. But I would love to see more learning around life skills, around emotional intelligence skills, around psychological type skills, which I would say, uh, again, with my bias, are just as important. But So coming back to the question, the reason we find it so difficult is that we've never learnt this before. We've never mm. been taught it. So unless you're someone like me who spent many, many years formally studying psychology or counselling or something similar, you know, similar sorts of things where you do learn it, but we're the minority. The majority of people don't learn that either at school or at university or in their jobs. So when we're doing something that we're not skilled, we haven't been taught how to do something, then of course it's going to be difficult, of course it's going to be uncomfortable. And because of uh, the way our culture, our society is set up, um, sitting with or listening to distress and unpleasant emotions is unpleasant. Mm. Um, there are these things, I don't know if you want to go into detail, but as humans we have Please these things do. called mirror neurons. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the idea of mirror neurons. Explain. So in a particular part of our, I'll try to simplify, in a particular part of our brain we have these 
neurons, particular um, brain cells, um, that mirror emotional responses we see in another person. So when if, if I had an MRI machine attached or like something attached to my brain um, and I was sitting talking to you, if you were expressing pain or distress or discomfort in, in some way, my brain would be responding with very, very similar, yes. similar response. So it would, it would be as though I was experiencing the pain myself. Mm. And this is why so human, we're, we're fundamentally wired to be empathic. Mm. That's part, which is a good thing in many, many ways. But what it means is if I'm, you know, if you're talking to me about distress or discomfort, I'm going to feel distressed and discom- yes. uh, uncomfortable as well. So it is painful, like literally painful. Um, and because we haven't been trained or taught how to, how to deal with that, um, a lot of people, quote, unquote, metaphorically, run away. And one of the ways we run away is to try and find up solutions because that seems easier. It seems pre- – and, and, again, it's not completely inappropriate. It's, you know, we're trying to help, but it's also not – Always the best way to go. This is fascinating. I'm, I'm loving this. Some, well, can you give us other, some other tips on how we can then? Uh, because often we, you know, we will, as a listener, will have our own experiences and our own little. I like to use the word triggers because that often gets overused now, but it's important to acknowledge that, you know, there are parts of people's experience that resonate with our own and can take us into a different place. And what are some some tips and hints for listeners that you would like to give out there uh, who um, are often finding themselves listening and uh, are known as the, the go-to person in a crisis for their friendship group, particularly as, um, you know, that moment after you kind of depart the conversation for uh, maintaining a sense of uh, well-being and equilibrium? Well, yeah, well, there's probably a lot, there's a lot of things I'd like to say. Um, I find KFC I, really is. <laughs> um, well, I suppose, yeah, look, there's a couple of things. I'll try to keep it succinct. But, yeah, but I suppose one of the first things I'd say is that if, if you are that go-to person, um, as difficult as that can be at times, and I'll come back to that in a second, it's also a compliment. You know, so people are actually saying, we respect you, we admire you, we like you, we think we trust and, you know, feel comfortable with you. So, um, so you know, I guess try to take it as the compliment that it often is. Or well, it's a privilege, isn't it? And a privilege and an honour, really. Again, if, you know, for someone to come to me and say, can I share my deep, dark secrets with you, um, it is a real privilege. And so that needs to be honoured as such, I suppose. But as you hinted at, it's also really important um, that we take care of ourselves. Um, you know, you can only, you know, you can't fill someone else's bucket from an empty bucket, There's, mm. <laughs> to use another metaphor. But, um, yeah. you know, I can't care for other people, whether it's sort of professionally or personally. So, I mean, even in my personal life, you know, I can't be a good husband, father, friend mm. if I'm sick, tired and miserable. So, and you know, as a professional, you know, can't be, you can't be a good psychologist or pastor or whatever if you're worn out, you know, stressed out, whatever it might be, burned out. So, so we do need to take care of ourselves. We, we want to honour the, you know, the, the privilege that we have and listen to other people help them as best we can. So that's a balancing act and sometimes yeah. that might mean setting boundaries, which is, you know, as we all know, easier said than done. But sometimes it might mean saying, look, I, I can't do this right now, which is difficult, or can we just limit this right now in some way or other? Um, or it might mean, you know, as you said, you know, refer to the, the immediate afterwards. So, you know, mm. what do you do immediately after that person? Well, whatever self-care you need, make sure you do attend to that. Because if we give too much to other people, which is, you know, always seen as a good thing, well, it's not everything that's good can have a, bit, a dark side, I suppose. And we can't give, give, give without giving something back mm. to ourselves. But and, and the reason a lot of people struggle with that is that self-care is often misunderstood as being selfish. You know, because particularly for carers, 
Caring for others is always highly valued. Mm. Often raised with scripts that says your only identity uh, of any value is found in the way you care for others. You know, don't don't focus on you. Exactly. And, and so, and again, I think caring for others deserves to be highly valued. It's a wonderful thing. We need more carers in the world. Mm. But, but if where the identity is completely yeah. linked to... Exactly, that and that's why. Um, but but if so, if that is your identity, you need to understand that, that for that identity to be sustainable in the long term, self care has to be a point. And again, unfortunately, self care is often misunderstood as being selfish, but it, it shouldn't be. It's not. Again, you know, I can, if I want to be a good carer, which a lot of us, and I guess people listening to this, almost you know, be almost like a self selecting population in some ways. That mm. people listening to this are probably caring type people. Um, well, we need to care for ourselves, uh, and and so self care will differ for different yeah. people. You know, it's everything. look, a car doesn't. Uh, it's not selfish to refill the tank exactly. or send it to the mechanic. From plug time in, to time. plug in your smartphone. Well, you whatever. plug in your phone at the end of the day because yeah. my goodness, we overwork those most yeah, of the exactly. time, don't we? You personally have wound your way into this kind of. Uh, life and where you are now because of uh, some personal experiences that you've had with struggles with your mental health. At what age did you first begin to feel like uh, everything's not going so well? Yeah, uh, look, I'll, I'll be completely honest and open about it. So I've experienced at times quite severe mental ill health, um, mostly depression with elements of anxiety and worry and, and suicidal ideation. For most of my adult life, it's yeah, on and off. It hasn't always been bad, but it's been pretty bad at times. Um, it, it first got really bad just after high school. So I guess I was, I suppose I was 18, 19, 20. I can't remember exactly. Mm. However, looking back, the warning signs were there. I just ignored them and, again, because we this is – this was pre Are You OK Day. This was pre a lot of the awareness that we have now. So I didn't really even know what was going on. Again, right. my parents, you know, I think they were trying, but they didn't really know what was going mm. on. It's, you know, I think we had one school counsellor for, you know, a thousand people or whatever. So there's no chance of getting any help, you know, but, but we just didn't know then. This is a, this is the dark ages in a sense. So, so looking back in, in hindsight, the warning signs were there a few years earlier, you mm. know, maybe mid high school, but it didn't really, you know, the, the proverbial didn't hit the fan till, um, to the first or second year university mm. when it, it got really bad due to a number of factors that are pretty obvious now in hindsight. Um, but again, which, you know, ignorance just, we just didn't really know about. So now going back to the importance of language mm-hmm. and to be able to adequately describe things is, you know, there's a character from theology, St. John of the Cross, and he had this experience that spanned years and Mother Teresa actually called it the long loneliness, the long loneliness, which was years of this sense of darkness and absence. And from that, we get the concept, the dark night of the soul. Some people then have a bad night and they go, oh, I had a dark night of the soul. And you go, no, I don't think that's quite catching what you said. Similarly, people say, I was so depressed when I saw that. And so, and it, it kind of runs roughshod. But is it okay? Could we, could you perhaps go and describe some of the contours of how you experienced, what, what it's like for you when you're experiencing that darkness and depression? Yeah, well, look, I think it's perfectly okay for people to use words like depression and anxiety. These are they're normal human emotions. Yeah. Well, what's important from a like a if I put my clinical psych, you know, my professional hat on, yeah. I, you know, it's important to differentiate between normal human emotions like sadness, depression, grief, anxiety, stress, worry. These are things we all experience at times. From what we would call you know, like a clinical diagnosable disorder, so what we technically call major depressive disorder, is different to depression. Yes, or what we would technically call 
uh, one of the anxiety disorders. There's several, um, you know, panic disorder, agoraphobia, generalised anxiety. That's different to just normal anxiety. Mm. Um, so it's perfectly okay to use those words. Um, you know, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling anxious. Okay, I mean, again, if there's anyone out there who's never felt anxious, well, I'd be a bit worried about them. Yes. <laughs> you know, there's times when we should feel anxious, we should be afraid. Um, it's, a, again, it's a normal, appropriate, healthy um, emotion. But uh, as a, what, a, what we'd call major depressive disorder mm. is much more than that. And it's more than that in that the intensity, the duration, plus the the collection of other signs and symptoms. So, for example, my, when major depressive disorder is what I would have been diagnosed of uh, most of my life, I suppose, is not just depressed mood. Mm. It is depressed mood, but it's also feelings of hopelessness and helplessness, often feelings of suicidality. It's significant interference with sleep, with appetite, with energy levels, um, difficulty concentrating, difficulty mem- remembering and making decisions. So it's all of those that you need to have, well, depending on which diagnostic system you use, but you need to have sort of at least five or seven of them mm. over at least a two-week period yeah. before you'd start to be considered to have a formal diagnosis. So what was the what were the keys for helping you or continue to help you, not only as you try and sustain your own sense of mental well health uh, through the next uh, through your life but um, at that time at 19 and 20 what were some of the keys that really helped you recognize it and begin to do something well unfortunately i didn't recognize it till way too late uh, and which is which is common you know often mm. we it's not till we hit really rock bottom and i was I was rock, rock bottom. Um, you know, I wish in hindsight I'd recognised a lot of it. And that's one of the things I've got much better at. So these days I'm much better at identifying some of the early warning signs so I can catch myself usually and take action much earlier, sooner than mm. I would have done, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But, so but what, what is it that you try and catch yourself for? You know, do oh, you well run yourself me, a, a metric system in your head, a diagnostic system? Oh, well, sort of, yeah. yeah. And, and, so, and so I'm happy to describe that, but I'll preface Please. it by saying we're, we're yeah. all different. So yes. depression is not the same for everyone. Mm. It may, you know, not, mm. not everyone with major depressive disorder, not everyone with an anxiety disorder experiences exactly the same thing. And that's important. So we, mm. all, we would all have our own early warning signs. But for me... Mm. For me, so um, identifying. Every, I mean, you've got. You're going to share yours now, but yeah. we've all got our own warning signs. Like I know if I've stopped reading for pleasure, uh, that's one of my small triggers. If I've stopped exercising physically, I know that I go. Oh, two of those three things have appeared. I've got about five or six in my life. Exactly. That uh, mostly positive ones, and there's a few negative ones. That if I go, oh, I drank three times this week, that's yeah. a signal. For me, that's my diagnostic. So we've all got our own, and it's about knowing yourself. But what are yours? But, but exactly, and that's really important. So often, look, you know, for for many people, there are specific behaviours, like I said, exercise or not exercising, um, mm. uh, you know, not eating well, drinking too much, um, those sorts of things. Um, for me, um, one of the main ones for me is poor sleep. Um, that's a you know, insomnia has been um, a big problem for me, and that's a sort of a Sort of almost like the heart and soul of my depression in a lot of ways mm. when I'm not sleeping or I sleep well makes a massive difference, vice versa. Yeah. Um, so poor sleep, and again, and, and not engaging in what I now consider regular healthy behaviours like exercise. Um, for me, social withdrawal is a big part. Even though I spend most of my professional life speaking on stage in front of thousands of people, I'm essentially quite an extreme introvert. Most of the best speakers are. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned reading for pleasure. That's one of my... Mm 
greatest pleasures. So I do, re- you know, it's one of my favourite things to do. But it, but it, there's also, as I said a bit earlier, every almost everything that's good in life has a dark side. And the dark side of that mm. is that I can, because I love doing that, I can isolate and withdraw, even from my wife and kids, you know. that's um, So mm. I need to be wary of even the good things in my life. That everything can, in balance, right? Can go to, exactly. Mm. So, so they're, they're probably the main things for me now, poor sleep, um, social withdrawal, not exercising, but um, but back then, um, you know, again, I didn't um, I didn't even know. I, I mean, I had no idea. And this is even, you know, I was only in my first or second year of studying psychology, so I wasn't even learning about it professionally. But oh, you were studying psychology. I just started. Well, but oh, yeah, I was at like first year, and he said it was very. Um, and that was that was an accident. I didn't really even know why I wanted to study psychology. But but you did ask a while ago what was the most important thing, and without a doubt, the most important thing I did then, and still the most important thing I can do now is ask for help. Yeah. Uh, and again, the reason I didn't back then was I just I didn't even know. <laughs> I just did, mm. it wasn't even an option. It just wasn't something that was talked mm. about. Access to psychologists or mental health professionals was was so much more difficult back then. It just wasn't. Um, and again, it was almost not even part of the conversation. And there was the stigma, partly being male, but also just of mental health generally. That you know the idea of seeing a psychologist would have seemed or did seem even anathema. It was just it was just seemed like it's just not something I should do, you know. I should be able to cope on my own. Or had all these ridiculous, unrealistic expectations, unhelpful expectations that made it more difficult than it should have been for me to get help. Well actually I should say because this is another important point. Um, you know, we, we these days we encourage people to seek help and that's fantastic. Yeah. You know, whether it's a professional like a you know, psychiatrist, psychologist, mental health professional, etc. I often say psychologist because that's because what I am, but I mean you know, more broadly any mental health professional. But also just personally, you know, talk to our family, friends, whatever. Seeking help is super, super important. Really yep. encourage people to do it. But what isn't talked about enough, I don't think, is that that first person you go to isn't always going to be the right one. So, for example, the first psychologist I saw, she was nice. Yeah, we're um, somewhere. She was comfortable. Yeah. It wasn't entirely a bad thing, but it wasn't that fantastic either. So after mm. a while I thought, this isn't really helping. I went to another one. He was atrocious. Well, for me, we just we clashed. It was actually a really unpleasant experience. And this isn't talked about a lot. You know, we encourage people to get help. That's it's sometimes it's difficult. It doesn't you know, it's like a relationship. It's like dating, you know, you don't marry the first person you go on the first date with sort of thing. So for me, it was actually the third therapist I saw. Yeah. And she I still say she saved my life, basically. But this is, I've recently learned that this is really, really common. For a lot of us, it takes two, three, four, five attempts to find, again, the right. And it's not always that that person's bad, but it's just the fit's not right. The therapeutic so, bond isn't the necessarily The therapeutic relationship, there, yeah. the style, the approach that. And it, but it could be the same with friends. I mean, your best friend, the person you feel closest to, might not always be the person to best help you or even, you know, your husband and wife might not always be the best person. So I guess what I'm saying is the most important thing is asking for help, seeking help, but if that first one doesn't work out, please keep trying. Maybe yeah. it's that next one or the one after because uh, hopefully eventually you will find the right person, either professional or amateur, you know. You know, you've you've really named something very important there is mm-hmm. – we don't normally or naturally reach out or seek help. And when we do have the courage to finally end up in a setting where we might be receiving professional therapy, we often just collapse into that first relationship and into that first session, mm. particularly with a professional. And it might take a little while to recognise that maybe there's a mismatch, maybe mm. it's not right for me because we are in such unfamiliar territory. We have no filters as to 
which one is good or which one is bad. So, you know, it's an important one to keep talking with our family and our friendship groups and particularly our trusted inner circle for that. And, you know, we the other thing is we so rarely do reach out and ask for help because we're terrified of what others will perceive about us that will be, particularly for men, to be <clears throat> perceived as weak. And I know you've got a bit of an interest in in men's health. Can I read you a quote and can you respond to it? Yeah, can I just right? go back there? Yeah, yeah, sorry, at, go. Just at the risk of disagreeing with you because we do reach out for help in other Feel areas free of to our disagree. life. <laughs> yeah, please. But I think it's, it's a point because we, we do reach out. And, so, for example, you know, most of us would have been to a doctor, you know, like a, you know, a, a GP for physical type problems. Why should seeing a psychologist be any different? Most of us have been to the dentist. Most of us oh. have been to an accountant at you know tax time. Most of us, have, some of us, might have been to a lawyer or, or a car mechanic. You know, if a car's broken, not all of us are able to fix it. So we are able to ask for help if the car's broken, if our tooth's aching, um, if our taxes problematic or whatever, I would argue that seeing a psychologist shouldn't be seen as any different. I mean, it is, but I wish it wasn't. I wish seeing a psychologist was just seen as finding an expert in that particular part of our life in the way we find experts in other parts of our lives. Well, that's where words, you know, we, we say words create our worlds, right, and it's really important as we've discussed and you've raised about having the ability to have access to a good emotional vocabulary and there's a there's a great initiative out in the country actually. I don't quite know where it is but... So there was a nurse who was sick of the amount of uh, attempts at death by suicide she was seeing in rural communities. So she developed a uh, an initiative called... She said, when do men call out for help in the country? And the only time they do is when they're bogged. When they're bogged, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've connected with her. Yeah. She's doing some great work, yeah. Amazing, because yeah. you, you can say, we can say uh, often, I'm bogged, you know, yeah. I need a hand. But, uh, you know, we need to be able to work out creative ways of being yep. able to express this in, in our own. Yes, so, no, no, and also feel free to disagree with me because uh, <laughs> I say that, uh, you know, I'm wrong 90% of the time and 30% of the time I, I, I even know it. So <laughs> it, it helps. I'm going to read you a quote, then I just want you to, to react. It's from one of my favourite authors, Tim Winton. And this kind of speaks to, I'm not going to over-narrate it before I, I read it in, but, you know, the, it is part of some of the deep core fears that uh, many men have and, uh, and some of the pressures that we feel. He wrote it in an article about masculinity. He said, for what a mystery a boy is, even to a grown man, perhaps especially to a grown man, and how easy it is to forget what beautiful creatures they are. There's so much about them and in them that's lovely, graceful, dreamy, vulnerable, qualities we either don't notice or simply blind ourselves to. You see, there's a great native tenderness in children, in boys as much as in girls. But so often I see boys having the tenderness shamed out of them. Mm. There's a constant pressure to pull on the uniform of misogyny and join the shithead army. <laughs> boys and young men are so routinely expected to betray their better natures to smother their consciences, to renounce the best of themselves and submit to something low and mean, as if there's only one way of being a bloke, one valid interpretation of the role, of the part, the role if you like. There's a constant pressure to enlist, to pull on the uniform of misogyny and join that shithead army that enforces and polices sexism. And it grieves me to say it's not just men pressing those kids into service. Um, well, it's a fantastic passage um, and um, I'm, 
really <laughs> glad and excited you brought that up because I, so I, I did a, um, a, a podcast series a couple of years ago um, uh, with a guy called Gus Warland who you might be familiar with who, um, and it was, it was called Be a Man. The series mm-hmm. was called, it was all about masculinity and the Be a Man title, well, for me anyway, was really, I always framed it as a question, like what does it actually mean to be a man, not man up sort of thing. Anyway, as part of that, we interviewed a range of different people from a range of different perspectives um, about different aspects of sexuality and masculinity, et cetera, including Tim Winter. Um, mm-hmm. And I had a massive fanboy moment because I, like you, a massive fan of much of his fiction and his, I mean, a beautiful way with words he has obviously. So, so that was one of the highlights of my career, I think, mm-hmm. actually interviewing him ab- about masculinity. Yeah. Um, there's many ways to respond to that. But the first response that comes to mind, and he touched on that in the quote, and one of the things that the, the biggest takeaway that I, the, the lesson that I took away from this podcast series and from talking to this range of people, you know, we had athletes and academics, et cetera, was that, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about masculinity, but I'd love to shift the conversation to masculinities, plural, because as Mm. he's hinted at it, there's more than one way to be a man, which almost sounds so ridiculously obvious when you say it, and yet, again, the conversation around masculinity, Mm. even when you use that word, kind of assumes there's only one way to do it, but there's not. I mean, you know, I barely know you, but I'm pretty sure your definition of being a man will be different to mine, and that's okay. That's fine. I mean, my my son will probably have a different definition to me. I, you know, I hope he'll have his own version. I won't mention any names, but you know, there are some sort of social media influences out there spreading what I think is some just some really dangerous propaganda at toxic masculinity. You know, that this is the way to be a young man, and they've got these massive followings online of particularly young men, and it is dangerous because it's yeah. it's. It's, it's inaccurate, it's unhealthy. And we, mm. we, we know from the research that people who identify in ways that would be defined as toxic masculinity tend to have higher levels of mental ill health, mm. higher levels of anger and aggression, poorer health in other ways, you know, poorer relationships. So, I mean, that's why we call it toxic masculinity. It's just mm. not helpful, it's just not healthy for that person and all the people around them. So, yeah, I guess I, I, uh, this is, again, one of the things I've sort of banged on a bit in the last few years, the idea of masculinities, plural. We all need to find our own version of what a man is. One of the things that does concern me mm. is we see those commentators and those people who have the huge online mm. followings. What they're doing that I don't see too many others doing is instead of talking about masculinity and the state of masculinity, they're talking to young men. Who is out there who is promoting some alternative modes of masculinities? Uh, can you commend us to go and, you know, maybe spend some time listening to their podcasts or listening to what they're offering on YouTube? Uh, well, I don't know if he has... A podcast or YouTube, but or I think, but one of the best, I think, probably one of the best in Australia, certainly locally, is a guy called Zach Seidler, who, okay. who uh, is a psychologist, um, but he also works for Movember. Um, so I can't remember his exact title, but he's sort of head of research and anyway, and moustache growing probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he um, he's doing some he's doing some fantastic work, sort of both in the academic field, but in the practical and 
you know, and communicating. He's just done some great work around young men, men generally. Um, he's just a top bloke too. He's a really nice guy, Fantastic. really good communicator. He's one of those people, I guess I like to think I've done this well in my career, but he's, he can take the research, take the academic science and communicate it in a way that the average person can understand. Yep. And unfortunately... Not all academics are good at that. Um, and I suppose to go Most back to... Most academics aren't good at it. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> but I suppose to go back to those people who I really don't want to name because I don't want to no, give them oxygen. But but I guess you've got to give them credit. What They're, good, they're very good communicators. And I've yeah. talked to my son about this because so, he, you know, him and his mates, are, and, so, and he says, you know, they, they're persuasive they're, and they are. They're eloquent and they're charismatic. But... That doesn't mean what they're saying is true or helpful or healthy. So, but anyway, so Zach Sider locally um, is definitely one I'd give the big thumbs up to. Fantastic. It's really important that yeah. we do engage with those different modes of masculinities that are available to us. Otherwise, we uh, can get our identity built by what it's in reaction against mm. often. Little change attack. <laughs> We've been everywhere. Um, what is happiness and is happiness overrated? Oh, gosh, how long do we have? Um, <laughs> well, let me answer that in two. So what is, what is happiness? Well, so my area of expertise is really positive psychology, not happiness, um, and there's a subtle difference there. But So happiness is part of, one small part, really, of, of positive psychology. Positive psychology, which is a relatively new discipline within psychology, is often misunderstood as the study of happiness, but it's not. It's much more than that. It's really the, the science of thriving and flourishing, living our best lives. Now... Positive emotions mm. are part of that and happiness is part of the full gamut of positive emotions. So mm. in that sense, happiness is important. It's good for us but it's not everything and this is where sometimes it's misunderstood. So happiness as a positive emotion, we, yep. we know that positive emotions are healthy. They, they contribute to a good life in many, many ways but a really good life is much more than just feeling good. It's also doing good. So it's mm. also about generosity and altruism and volunteering and connection. Mm. Um, it's also about, you know, we know, I'm sure you know, to live a good life, um, you need at times to do things that aren't always pleasant, yeah. you know. So, so it's about working hard. It's, you know, helping others isn't always fun, but it's a good thing to do. Um, and much of a good life, you know, th things that go to a good life in the long term as opposed to the short-term pleasure that we sometimes get, again, sometimes that takes blood, sweat and tears. You know, anyone that's completed a a large project, a, you know, a degree, a book, or you know, I'm sure a lot of the work you do, at the end there'll definitely be fulfilment and satisfaction, but along the way mm. it can be pain and suffering. So, again, that's um, – so, so to answer your question, happiness can be understood in two ways. One, the short-term fleeting pleasure that we get, which is good but not everything, mm. but real deep and meaningful authentic happiness or what we'd more technically call thriving and flourishing is much more than that. And it's definitely mm. not just about me, me, me. It's about – us, us, us. It's, you know, it's about community, connection, relationships, just as much as it is about, or probably more so than the individual. Wonderful response. All human experience kind of exists on this, on this wave, and so there's, we have the highs as as well as the lows, and we've spoken already a bit today about good ways in which we can effectively manage those times in our lives where we have the lows and where we dip down. 
But what are some tips for managing the highs of life? You know, we often say that, uh, you know, the impulse to stay high is the impulse of an addict. <laughs> you know, if anyone promises that, you know, you should buy a kilo or whatever they're selling. <laughs> but what are some of the ways we can healthily and effectively manage uh, when the, the wave is at a crest? And one of the other things I've noticed about the wave at the crest, at the bottom, uh, our pronouns are I, I, me, me, <laughs> and at the top they're us, us and we, we often. It's, uh, but please, you know, what are some of the ways we can healthily and, and effectively manage when, when things are going well, when we're experiencing those? Well, well I think the first thing so is, just... to, is to actually savour and enjoy it. Um, you know, so many of us actually don't enjoy happiness. We don't enjoy the good times because we think... Spot on. We think we don't deserve it. We think, oh my god, if I actually enjoy this, it's going to end. You know, somehow this is what psychologists. You said this earlier. There's this magical thing says, "Don't should on yourself." You know, when we do, I shouldn't be this way, or I shouldn't feel happy. That's grow the twelve step mental health often says, "Don't should all over yourself." Exactly. So you know, so I, enjoy the good times, savor it, be grateful for whatever it is that's going on. Um, you know, so we know that in a gratitude, for example, um, which which is a key construct in positive psychology, but as I'm sure. Well, you know, predates positive. I mean, every major religion has some version of gratitude, appreciation, thankfulness, etc. Mm. So, you know, it's the idea of gratitude, which we now, you know, from a quote unquote science point of view, we know it works, but, you know, the greatest thinkers of the greatest philosophers and religious leaders for millennia have known that gratitude's important. So, so when things are good, be grateful, be thankful, appreciate whatever it is that's going on and maybe what you've done to contribute to that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. That's not a, you know, that's not being narcissistic or egoistic or whatever. If you've worked hard to achieve something and if you've created goodness, whatever that might be, well, again, savour it, enjoy it, whatever. Um, hey, we've got this Aussie culture thing that says don't be a big noter. <laughs> Well, exactly. There's the there's the talk. Well, and and so I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the reasons. You know, so a lot of people are afraid of that. The, you know, the tall poppy syndrome. There's all sorts of names, descriptors that are used for it. But see, you don't have to go. You don't have to march down the street singing and yelling. I'm the best in the world. I know that that's what that you can enjoy it in a well, whatever way works for you. Again, you know, some of us are more introverted. Some of us are more yeah. extroverted. Some people might express it more than others. So as as long as it's consistent with your personality or authentic for you mm. but if that feels uncomfortable and some well don't do that you know you mm. don't have to do that you can just quietly uh, internally give yourself a you know metaphorical pat on the back which is you know can be just as valuable if that's right for you uh, as an individual so mm. but you know but I think the other thing though is to keep things in perspective and I think I referred earlier to the again the phrase which I don't know where it first originated, but it's been around for many, many years. This too shall pass, you know, that idea. Yeah. That's that's most often used to help people get through difficult times. And it can, I mean, that's helped me enormously to get through difficult times. Is one of the probably the two most important things I've learned when I'm going through difficult times is one, I'm not alone and I can reach out for help, as yeah. I mentioned, and two, this yeah. too shall pass. I've learned um, you know, even in my darkest of darkest times, I'm I'm much better now at knowing, okay, this is horrible. I feel crap, whatever, whatever. But I know now after many, many years that either tomorrow or next week, it, it will get better. And that's really important. But that can also be used to keep good times in perspective a bit, I suppose. Mm. And again, I don't, it's not about bringing yourself down or, or not appreciating the good, but it's also important, I think, during the good times to realise that it's impermanent. 
Um, so that I, at the risk of bringing in another philosophy, you know, the, the Buddhist philosophy of impermanence, which I'm not sure if that's consistent with your approach, but but I mean, I think I found that very helpful yeah. as well. The, that yeah. everything's impermanent, um, and that's both you know the bad times won't last, but the good times won't. So appreciate them while they're there. Mm. And you know, they're mm. in very much in line with the, some of the Buddhist philosophies that uh, enliven us and mm. inform us. Is you know, every every difficult experience will have a grain of of goodness and light in it and vice versa every And the goodness comes out of the dew. So the lotus flower comes out of the mud is another Buddhist metaphor. Yeah, I do Uh, recall when my youngest would fall asleep on my chest, I thought, oh, this is perfect, but there will come a time where this perhaps will be the last moment (laughs) and there was a bittersweet thing that was was good to acknowledge and and own and, and be present to both of those emotions running simultaneously. Often when I'm talking to people in crisis and they're seeking immediate answers and uh, expressing quite well where they're at and what's happened to them and the course of action that could be taken and perhaps what they're contemplating doing as a result. Sometimes I, in the conversation, will say, how about we just have a good night's sleep and then revisit it in the morning? What's the importance of a good night's sleep, Tim? And what are some of the things we can do to actually enable that to happen? You have referred to this earlier. For, um, <laughs> well, for me, oh. p- for personally, it's um, very possibly the most important thing. Certainly, in my top two or three, is is, is sleep. So it's interesting, actually. Insomnia is often, uh, or sleep difficulties generally, are often sort of seen. I don't think we value them as much as we should. Or we we don't value. We don't. I don't think a lot of people realise how difficult it can be when you're not sleeping or how good it can be when you are sleeping. But if you look across all the psychological disorders or particularly all the what we call the mood disorders, so the depression and anxiety yeah. type disorders, poor sleep is, is, a, is a symptom or sign of, of every one of them. So I think that, you know, that shows you how key it is. It's certainly a core part of depression. Yep. But it's also, you know, for those people out there who, are, who are, have some sort of anxiety or worry or stress type related problem, mm. you know, a racing, ruminating mind can, is one of the main causes of difficulty sleeping. So yeah. How do we shut that monkey mind off? So as I said, uh, the, the first book I ever wrote was called The Good Sleep Guide. One of my uh, audio books that I've written is, uh, is Habits, for, Habits for Good Sleep, so it's something I'm very passionate about. The first thing I always say is make it a priority because too many people don't. You think that the number of people out there who prioritise either consciously or most more often unconsciously other things, reading, scrolling through social media, working, you know, watching TV, binging Netflix late at night, you know, and they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily doing it consciously, but when it comes, and I'm just going to say 10 p.m., but whatever your, you know, whatever your desired sleep time is, and there's no perfect answer mm. for that, but, you know, when it comes to 9.30, 10 p.m., whatever it might be, when we should be winding down, yeah. Too many people are still on their screens, they're still working, they're still doing stuff. So, And that to me is that you're not really making it a priority. If you're making sleep a priority, you will... Because one of the things, so what we call sleep hygiene or sleep habits is the simple answer to your question. That's developing yeah. a good sleep routine. And that part, one of the things is, is a wind-down period. So make it a priority... Set yourself up with good sleep habits, and one of the most, one of the simplest, but most important of them is is a wind down hour. So let's just, and again, I'm going to sort of arbitrarily say 10 p.m., but it can be. Yeah. Obviously, we're all different. At least 60, if not 90 minutes before your sleep time. So that would be sort of 8:30 or 9 o'clock. We want to stop doing anything that's in any way stimulating. And basically, staring at our screens is stimulating. Scrolling through social media, watching 
Netflix, whatever it might be. Or even and the hit from the, the light from the screen. The, the blue light that comes, yeah. exactly. So yeah. we want to stop and engage instead in calming, relaxing type activities. So reading, for example, is typically much more preferable. Um, although reading, Paperback or Kindle? Uh, well, these, so, yeah, that's fine. Kind of like e-reading devices. So most of those e-reading devices now have, you can change the lighting so you don't necessarily get that bright light. So, so something, in avoid the, in, being backlit. Yeah, right? so in the old days, the, the first versions or the early versions of, you know, the iPads and those screens, they were very bright, it stimulated the brain, mm. et cetera. Most of them have um, solutions to that now. But but it's still, it, I guess the idea is it's, and again, it can vary from person to person, but the idea is anything that you will find um, calming, relaxing, because, again, this idea we want to wind down. You can't switch off your brain in, you know, 30 seconds. Some people put their computer down, put the screen, think, right, I'm going to fall asleep now. It doesn't work like that. Your brain needs to be able to wind down. So there, there, and then there's other things like we know, you know, exercise is good for sleep. So exercising ideally in the morning or through the day, you, if you exercise regularly, you're more likely to sleep well. Uh, your diet can affect your sleep and particularly your nighttime diet. So, you know, no no caffeine late in the afternoon or evening, not too much, and preferably no alcohol late in the Does evening. Does that mean chocolate? No, not, not much chocolate uh, late in the evening? Well, a little bit's probably not going to make a, a, a difference. Um, but the big, one of the, probably the biggest mistakes that a lot of people make is eating too much at night. So if you're particularly very heavy, too much very heavy meals, your stomach then needs to digest that. Mm. Now, that requires energy. So your body's working hard. That raises your uh, temperature, your core temperature. All of these things are not conducive to sleeping well. So, you know. So dinner at seven or eight if you're, we're well, looking at the again, arbitrary it's, 10? It's, it's up to the individuals. But one of the simple things many of us could do is eat a little bit less and a bit lighter at night time. Just to keep it simple, really, mm. um, you know, and don't drink too many liquids. You know, if you have lots of liquids late at night, you're gonna have to go to the toilet. So yep. it's just a lot of it is simple stuff. And a lot of people say to me, "This is common sense," but common sense isn't always common practice. So um, just and then to come back to your, your original question was about the racing mind. Then there's a whole lot of strategies from what we'd call cognitive therapy or similar sorts of approaches about about managing those racing, mm. ruminating thoughts, um, mindfulness approaches, etc. And that's yeah, the good news is we can. Well, it can be really hard for some people, but we can all learn. There are simple, relatively simple, practical skills we can learn in addition to all those sort of lifestyle factors to um, manage worry a bit better and be able to wind down and sleep a bit better. Fantastic. Last question, though. If you could reorganise the education system, what would become <laughs> core to our curriculums across the nation? Oh, gosh. And I know we are expecting a lot of our teachers, particularly our public school <laughs> teachers at this time. Well, I think that I think we probably expect way too much, and mm. and and don't remunerate them nearly well enough for what oh, we expect. Double them. But, it overnight, but, please. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. That's a, but that's, that's, a, that's a whole other debate. Look, I, I kind of hinted this earlier, and again, I, and I don't mean this in the sense of putting more pressure on teachers, because mm. I think parents need to. I mean, parents don't, obviously yeah. have a big response, but I, I do think, um, and again, without wanting to diminish the importance of basic education or something, mm. you know, like maths and English and science, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I, do, I, I would love to see more life learning, life skills learning mm. around emotional intelligence, around well, a lot yeah. of the stuff we've spoken about, about yeah. how to, about, about emotional vaca- vocabulary, psychological flexibility, resilience. Mm. Um, as I said, it's it's a bit better than when I, well, it's it's definitely better than when I went to school, which mm. which was you know, from a zero, there was nothing then. So at least, at least <laughs> it's there's hard some... not to improve from a zero base. Exactly. So at least right. there is something yeah. now in some schools right. and some of those programs are really quite good mm. but there's not as much and there are still schools that don't get anything. Um, so, I, you know, I guess I just can't say... If you, if you think about, 
<laughs> I could go off on it. I think too much of our education is just focused on getting marks, getting your ATAR yeah. to get into university. Now, that's not entirely a bad thing, but mm. what's our education system? I guess the question is what should our education system really be doing? If it's about educating young adults for life, I don't think we're doing that as well as we could. I mean, we could take a huge discount on some of the academic achievements we're pushing out and teaching people rather instead how to manage themselves, how to work in groups, how to... And managing yourself would include issues such as budgeting, which exactly. I don't remember financial ever being literacy. <laughs> taught financial literacy. Exactly. How many yeah. of us go yeah. through life never having to pay a bill? Or ne- I mean, we, this, this is... The fact is we live in a capitalist materialistic society, which is another discussion, I suppose, but the fact is money is important, but we don't learn how to manage money. No, we, life we don't admin, talk about of course, exactly. I would love to do one. That's still... Well, and as you said, even, then, I think that's a great point you just made about working in groups. I mean, a significant number of us, when we get into our professional lives, we have to collaborate. Which, and that's a good thing. But we don't really, you know, most of education is about you individually studying and doing your exams individually. Mm. We, you know, there are, I guess, some team projects. So that's where EQ and communication exactly. skills and negotiation skills. That it's like team sports we talked about earlier. Someone can disagree study. with you and your world will not collapse. Exactly. So yeah, we probably need a whole other podcast episode to, to talk about some of those issues. Well, Dr Tim Sharp, I thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. And you've got a few books in publication. You've got Habits for Good Sleep, 10 Steps for Great Sleep and a Happier Life. And uh, also you're a well-sought-out psychologist, author and public speaker. Check out some of your talks online. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Today my guest has been Dr Tim Sharp, Australia's very own Dr Happy, who was at the forefront of positive psychology and founder of the Happiness Institute. Australia's first organisation devoted solely to enhancing happiness in individuals, families and organisations. Tim is the author of multiple books on habits for happiness at work, for sleep and for children. If you'd like to read or listen to Dr Sharp's books, we've added a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Stories by the Wayside. My name's John Owen. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe to our Inner Circle for more Stories by the Wayside. If you love this show please give it a five-star review. It helps so much in promoting this, but also share it with a friend. If someone you love who's going through a tough time came to your mind while you were listening, please share it with them. Subscribe to our Inner Circle for more stories from the wayside. We'll add a link in the show notes. This podcast has proudly been made in conjunction with MIK Made.